you very much, Paul, and welcome everybody. Uh, nice to see so many familiar faces here and also some new faces as well. And Peter, thank you very much for making the journey all the way from London to New Plymouth. So this uh, work that you're seeing in front of you is, I guess, the third development of a project that began three years ago. And at each stage of those uh, development circuit has supported Peter to make the work. Um, so I thought what we should do is perhaps talk about the different iterations of the project, um, how they've manifested themselves formally, and also how those different formal iterations have developed the conceptual parameters of the work as well. So Peter, perhaps could you talk about the first iteration of this work, which was a single channel film back in 2016. How did you come to make that? Um, in 2014, 14. I, yeah, I began to research this um, uh, borough of Dagenham um, because um, at the time there was discussion around the referendum around Brexit and I thought it would be interesting to go to neighbourhoods outside of the central London where I live at the moment, where we live, and to see what, what, what I might find in terms of a discussion that, be, that would be revolving around the periphery of London rather than the central part of London. And I, I heard that the borough of Dagenham had a very strong um, component of working class people, which most of the periphery of London is, but it also had a, the biggest and first housing estate in the world called Beacon Tree Estates. So um, they also have a research library which has got a large archive of material around the Beacon Tree Estates, which was first, the first foundations were put in in 1920, and the continued building through the late 30s. By 1933, the Ford factory, the biggest Ford factory in Europe, was built on, this, on the edge of the Thames um, using the, the um, workforce of Beacon Tree Estates as the workforce there. By 1960s, 1970s, and um, this is just groundwork for what I, this is all out of frame of this particular project here, but in order to kind of um, negotiate my relationship to this place that had, I had absolutely no relationship to at all because I am an immigrant and I am from, uh, I'm, I'm not a, from working class one, from New Zealand, so, this sort of idea of foreignness or um, outsidedness was an interesting kind of pro project to negotiate that difference and also discover something I knew nothing about in terms of the working people of this borough and London and to a large extent England. So through that research at the Beacon Tree Library, I kind of kind of got interested in the idea of not portraying the working class or the working force or the the uh, the, the changes of the neighbourhood that have happened from white working class mainly now to an immigrant population. I, I didn't. I became less interested in that, but more interested in um, making some kind of intervention, which I felt was a, an, a the the most appropriate way to engage in the site of Dagenham and. In the site of Dagenham, I chose the, uh, two, three sites to begin with. One, and the first film, that the single channel work, was, place, was placing a, um, a figure on the A13, which is the biggest trunk road in Britain, um, and just have them standing there 
reacting to the space. I didn't quite know how this, how that person was going to work in the space, or what my context for having a person in that space, but the space it seemed to me to approximate what I felt was happening to the discussions around Brexit at the time. Now, if you can unpack that, then <laughs> you're better than I. So it was really a, a feeling, a sense that this space, and the A13 has this, they developed a walkway and a bikeway along it, and they also put artworks along it. This, and it was, these artworks were the, commissioned by the British Council, and at the time they were the most uh, expensive public artworks uh, for those five years, five-year cycle. And as part of that, they put a walkway and a, uh, as I said, walkway and a bikeway, but it's, that bikeway and walkway are, are a few centimetres off the highway, They're elevated. There's no, really, really no elevation in parts, which, and so if you put a figure on that and have a relationship to the road, the person and, and the, the background was kind of a, a, quite a filmic way of um, making sense of what I felt was this space of indecision or space of ambiguity. So you started off by going to the library in Beacon Tree, researching the history, yes. and then you moved to a more kind of experiential kind of mode of production. Yeah, phenomenological way. Open-ended in a way. Yeah. Working with a cast of people who aren't actually actors or performers, are they? No. They, that, that was one of the criteria is that, firstly, I knew them, and I, so... How did you know them? Are they... Uh, some of them I work with, and right. some of them I work for. Uh, Bess who's a Swedish um, printmaker. Um, she works collectively, and I did a documentary for her. Um, um, Nayan is a light, um, works with light, and I have worked with him, and a couple of other people I have worked with at the Royal Academy where I work. Um, so you went out to Dagenham and you, in a sense, got to know the place by taking the camera, taking performers, and then asking them to enact these quite sort of open-ended sorts of gestures. What kind of instructions did you give to them specifically? Can I say that I sometimes, like the, the Jostler House project, I sometimes I never took a camera. I just went out there and just hung out. And that's when I began to observe certain, just little, I was really interested in small, um, discrete moments that happen in nondescript places, like waiting for a bus. And what's the, what you might do absentmindedly or might do repeatedly just because you're waiting so waiting those objects often were um, people were holding a some I saw a woman holding a cup she looked at the cup and she sort of tossed it um, I saw a, a person who was I think he might have been Eastern European because he was not British because of his accent he opened up a can of sardines and ate, ate just dead it was uh, sardines um, I saw someone have a stick and he walked along the stick and tossed the stick. So I kind of took those as, as keys for minute gestures for the performer to do. And often that's a trope to allow the performer to feel at ease about being in front of a camera. So a lot of that early material in that first iteration of the film is in here. But there was a second iteration as well, which is quite radically different. Yeah. In that you had a four screen installation 
but two screens were this kind of material yeah. and the other two screens were interviews with supporters of Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders right. talking about their path to participation in grassroots right. volunteers for the two campaigns yeah. and the people interviewing the supporters of Corbyn and Sanders were in fact some of the performers from here, is that yes, correct? Yes, they were playing the role of interviewer. Right, so you had a mixture of kind of fact and fiction. Right, playing different film registers as well, yeah. I was playing with the idea of different film registers, whether, how we can read the idea of performance and, the re and, and also the, the, con the conceit that here we have someone who actually took action and the person who's performing the role of interviewer more or less hasn't taken action or isn't taking action at that particular point of time. So that takes us to the title of this work, which is Suspended Agency, where there's nobody who's taking action, if you like. It's all suspended agency. And in fact... Or if they're taking action, that it's repeated. It's not, it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Yeah, and it seems it's inter what's interesting to me is that where before you had fact and fiction beside each other, now you've kind of got fact and a little bit of mysticism because you have these kind of portents which could be read in some way. There's a glass swan that someone picks up and they turn it over in their hands. Someone stares at trucks passing by on the highway yeah. as if there's something inside them. They're coming from somewhere, going somewhere. It's very deliberate. There's a roll of glass that's found mysteriously on the ground here. Could you talk a little bit about how that works into this iteration of the yeah, project? I, I think there's a lot, there is a lot of slippage around of s sort of signifiers. How, what is a, eventually, if you concentrate the lens on a particular object and, and, and frame it, it becomes an object of, of significance. And that roll of glass, it, was, it looked interesting as an object, and the space that it was held in was this overpass that, part of the Ripple Road, which is one of the oldest roads in Britain, actually, reading, leading out to the east of London. Um, it was a way of... of um, seeing the space that, or reading the spaces that objects have, or particularly they're all discarded objects, um, reading the spaces, the, the thing called, what's it called, fly tipping. Fly where you just dump rubbish. By where the you dump rubbish. rubbish, yeah. And this area is a lot of fly tipping going on. And some of the objects are kind of interesting, and this rolled up piece of glass looked like a mat. In fact, when I was um, videoing it, a woman came up to me and, and began to question why I was videoing. I said, well, I'm sort of interesting. It's an object that captures my interest and I didn't know why it was there. And she launched quite quickly into the idea that, not the idea, that it was immigrants who put it there. These people from Eastern Europe put it there. And they, so we had a long discussion of what that means. And I said, I was actually an immigrant and I was from New Zealand and what it means. And she said, you're okay because you speak English. So she excused me for being an immigrant, but didn't excuse what she thought for people who dumped that rolled up glass. So the, it, it sort of, for me, it was just a personal interaction and it doesn't make it into that. I did have the camera going, well, but I don't want to put it in because I think it ex kind of exploits her and I, don't, I think it would be a bit of a red herring. I don't want to be absolutely explicit about or announce something that here are people who want Brexit to happen, here are people who are advocating to remain. That's not really part of this um, work. I feel like we should take advantage of the fact that Jed is on screen here and there's a sequence from Alphaville over here to start talking about these two um, 
parts of the work. So this is Jed. I think Jed is the greatest gift to the project that you could have imagined. Uh, Jed is such a fascinating character. At the start of the filming process, Jed is identifying themselves publicly as male. Three years in, Jed is identifying themselves as female. So you have this idea of suspended agency, but then you have Jed, who's made like an incredibly decisive gesture, an incredibly brave gesture. How does Jed fit into this idea of suspended agency? Mm, well, he, he's playing a part. He's a, he is performing a part. We talked about, I asked him, how do you feel about uh, you... You mean performing a part in the work? In the work. Right. She is performing, and, and she's really good at performing, so uh, she felt it was fine. She didn't see any problem with seeing the transition happen on screen, and, and we both felt it didn't diminish what I was trying to, what I think I'm trying to work with. Um, she performs a role, and that was the role of person who's kind of stuck and suspended and in a state of stasis. But personally, she's not. So beside Jed there, we had the newest element in this project, which is the scenes from Alphaville. So this is a film made by Jean-Luc Godard in 1960, what was the year? 1965. 1965. So why bring in excerpts from this film made in 1965 into this work? Um, it, 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 it's kind of a, um, as Brexit began to, as Brexit is now heated up into a boiling boil of cauldron of whatever. Hot mess. Mess. <laughs> um, as it began to develop into a mess, into a mess that seemed, and, and allied to that was when, when news came out with Cambridge Analytica, the, the um, the group that began to use data to um, pigeonhole or to direct their advertising to for a leave campaign, when that came out and the relationship to Russia and that kind of stuff, I, and I, I kept thinking of Alphaville as, as going, I kept thinking of Alphaville and, and the, the computer um, Alpha 60. And then, and again, reading, it, I was going to the BFI a lot. Actually, I, ed I edited this whole thing with BFI Library on a laptop. <laughs> and, um, um, and John Luc Godard had uh, studied um, and, and talked to the M uh, some computer scientists at MIT about data collection in, in the mid-60s, which was happening then. Also, at the same time, Godard had spoken to Antonioni about the Red Desert and he was really interested in AI, artificial intelligence, in terms of writing a script and integrating that as a backdrop for Red Desert. So I thought, wow, this, um, the Computer 60 data collection um, seemed to be a backdrop to Brexit and what's happening in the United States, as we know about um, hacking. And I thought it would be an interesting kind of dis um, move to integrate that movie into a way of addressing the issue of what might be a way of 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 um, of, of um, what's the word? Not battling, but negotiating this this contemporary condition of the spectre of computers and artificial intelligence 
and the manipulation around that. And the answer that Goddard gave was, was through love, um, understand the irrational, and what was the other third? But it was that idea of... Poetry? Poetry, thank you. Yeah, those three elements. And I thought that's an interesting kind of foil for what might be our present condition as well. It's interesting to me that... In but, I, but I must say, I did critique that. Goddard's version of his way of battling... That love poetry yeah, could be well, an effective form of resistance. Because I had Jed read a critique of the movie at the very end. It seems though that across your body of work, you're quite often referencing mid-20th century European filmmakers. What... There's more of a draw in that body of work for you than just Goddard, isn't there? I mean, there's something... 1960s, yeah. Yeah. Pasolini, um, Goddard, um, Straub and Hulier. So what is it about that era and those artists that, that for you, is still so urgent? I, I, think, it's the, uh, I think it's a time where um, there was a, a collective action against the power, against the uh, corporate body and... Um, uh, serious questions around where the democracies of European democracies were going. Um, and I read, I think I sent it to you, that Felix Katari wrote a very short um, essay around this period. He, read, he wrote it in the early 80s saying, I, have a, I really, really have a deep romance around the 1960s. It was my time and I always think about it as a place where I and others were collectively working to change the world for the better. But now it's the 1980s and it's all gone and I feel very, very sad. It's bleak. That's and I thought, wow, when I read that, oh, that's an interesting kind of... Uh, I, I never experienced the 60s, but I, I do remember the 70s. I was, you know, still was a cognitive around what my parents were talking about the 60s, around all those hippies and those those um, idea of, of demonstrations and things like that. But that, I mean, that does sound a little bit like we thinking to me, like, oh, it was so much better back then, you know? Like, that's... No, Is that no. really no, know, we a have, strong no, idea? No. Um, Straub and Huye always said that um, Walter Benjamin was, was really angry at the, the communists and the... And the um, the socialists, because their banner was they were always saying, look forward and you can change looking forward. We're always looking forward, looking forward to change. And Benjamin always said that the, the roaring line of change is looking backwards. And Straubling Houllier always used history as a backdrop for a lot of their contemporary ideas. And that's what I felt. I felt, I think we, you know, um, it's interesting in The Guardian today, they were, they were sort of looking through British history and seeing what uh, what the Brexit condition kind of might look have looked like in the past in British history, um, and going from Henry VIII on up through the 19th century and, and Brexit. So it's not an uncommon thing to have a civil um, a, a relationship internally that is uh, almost a civil war. It's interesting to mention Brexit because, in a way, it's become the kind of red herring in this project. I mean, you started out in Dagenham, which is uh, a borough that voted overwhelmingly for Brexit, uh, but that largely concentrated on one figure, that first film. This one here, you have like a whole bunch of European nine. peoples, nine people? 
Yeah. So not necessarily British people. So it's not just about this kind of British condition of being suspended. Right. It's much, and also, much broader. And also, sorry. No, <laughs> that's a question. Yeah, and also I, um, the idea of foreignness is clearly they are sort of proxies for my condition. What I so I'm sort of placing myself in there through them somehow. Because you're an immigrant twice over, aren't you? You spent 25 years in New York, and now here you are again in Britain. Yeah. Very curious. <laughs> are all these people proxies for yourself? I, th I think there is elements of it, yeah. Because uh, they are people, I, they, they're either involved in the arts or peripherally involved in the arts. I think um, uh, Andrew is the only one, who, he's an IT person. Right. He's not... And he and Andrew was, um, the, he really found performing quite difficult. He didn't really like performing. I did want to ask you, like, what what do you feel the people involved in this got out of this process? Because it's very exploratory, yeah. very open-ended. They need to trust you. Yeah. I think I, I I we would discuss it a lot around what I felt that they could contribute, meaning this their their, their bodies. And, I mean, their stature, um, and they were interested in my idea of, and they idea of, and they understood my reason for wanting to do this, and so they were quite keen to to, to participate. I'd like to talk a little bit about the way the work has been shown and the kind of material elements of this four-screen installation. What struck me this morning was just how important the sound is to this work. We put the yeah. sound up as loud as we could get it, actually. Um, it didn't seem overly loud, but it just activated the work in quite a potent way. Could you talk a little bit about how sound functions in this work? Yeah, I, I, I think sound's really important too, because the because you do, as we know, when you stand next to a highway and get against traffic, it, it is very, and it's intense um, oral um, audio uh, thing that happens and also there are moments of relief as well with the sounds of birds but also the sound of um, recordings of, of uh, bus trips that I will take around Dagenham. So um, those kind of their voices overheard are as important as the people who are in the site, who are standing on the site. Um, yeah, and also when the, 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 the sort of plateau scene of um, where Pat stands at the bus stop when it's completely empty and then you see the vast space of the Thames is just across the horizon, the, the um, A13 is just off from the horizon, the Ford plant is just off from the horizon. There's, sense, there's a sense of emptiness but the sense of, of, um, and of, of stuff going around just across on the horizons and sound kind of, you kind of get that in the sound, I think. And this, the four screens is pretty interesting as well because, of course, three, the triptych is such a classic form, but with four, everything is much more dispersed. It's much kind of harder to grasp. Could you talk about that strategy as well? Uh, yeah, it's, it's harder not. I think what I tried to do was I mimicked um, the Beacon Tree Estate idea, like roads going parallel to each other and sometimes circular roads, so there's a lot of vanishing points. So I tried to create a, 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 a way of viewing it that you would see it instantaneously or read it quite quickly. So he's got a vanishing point, there's another vanishing point, that's not, that's flat. 
and that's kind of flat too. So I've organised the material around around these uh, around structuring it around our space, how spaces work in the film, not outside the film. Sometimes these spaces don't appear that way, but I make I kind of frame them that way. I kind of demand a a way of looking at the picture through the frame. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for coming today, and uh, see you next time. Bye -bye.